This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored welcome everyone to trek fm's dedicated star trek books and comic show i am so excited to be here we've got some amazing things to talk about tonight in news but before we get to that i'm i'm joined by some incredible guys one as you know he's with me all the time dan gunther hey how's it going good to be back again it's it's great to be back. Um, one, we have, I think, it's just a really fun book that we're going to talk about uh, coming up in the feature, but um, we've got some great news. And before we do that, let's let us let everybody know, hey, Bruce, you're back. I never went anywhere. I've just been sticking <laughs> around, hanging out. Are, are you are you sleeping on the, uh, the, the fold-out bed that we have here at the Literatrek Studios? I am. It's v- quite comfortable, actually. I've been enjoying sleeping on that fold-out bed quite a bit. I thought that was just a pile of blankets. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Yeah. I found my books on you earlier. No, nah, it's okay. I read some of them. They were actually good. <laughs> wow, that's that's weird too because I like I felt like I folded up the bed and it felt lumpier than normal. You did on the couch, but you did oh, fold sorry, up bro. the bed. That's fine. It's fine because I needed to roll over, so that helped. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have some incredible news. Uh, as many Star Trek fans know. We love to interview the authors here, and many a times we have talked to the authors about the idea of, you know, writing a new show, what they do in Star Trek. We've had a few authors, you know, like David Mack, that have actually had stories that have been used on Star Trek television shows. Well, we're adding another one. Kirsten Mother... Buyer is writing for the new Star Trek series, and I I don't know about you guys, but round of applause. Here, here, absolutely. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, Kirsten, if you're listening, we are super excited for you. And um, I gotta say, guys, if if you want to hear the person who's going to be writing here on the new series, you just need to check out Literary Treks. In fact, we have a bunch of different episodes that you'll want to check out if you want more information about who is going to be writing. And uh, let me give you those episode numbers real quick. Those episodes are number 138, number 102, 79, 49, and number 2. That's right, all the way back there at number 2. And we can't wait to have Kirsten on again to talk about some of her other novels and, of course, her new works that'll be coming out, and we just might get a chance to ask about, you know, what's going on at the brand new series. In fact, I gotta say, I, I think we're the only show on the network who has uh, interviewed a writer on the show. That's pretty awesome, yeah, guys. No, that's that's pretty great. Um, I have to say, when I found this out, uh, I was, I, I think it's the most excited I've been in a long, long time. Uh, Dayton Ward posted about it and that's how I first saw it and uh, he was worried that in his words I was going to blow an O-ring because I was so excited about yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see me like bouncing off the walls about something the night I found this out that was incredible. Yeah but there's got to be a part of you that worried oh my gosh is it going to delay another novel from her? You know, so it's kind of like a catch-22 here. It's like, I want her to write on the show, but I also want a novel. I want it now. Definitely. Well, she did uh, post recently on the Trek BBS uh, saying that she is still continuing to write the Voyager novels. So 
Uh, don't worry about that. We will, I'm sure, have her on the show again in the near future uh, when we get the next two that she's uh, announced so far. Uh, but obviously her schedule is a lot more full now than it was before. So, uh, yeah. She's riding through her little thing called Star Trek 2017. I guess that's what we're calling it because we don't have a name yet. So uh, she's got another writing bit on her schedule. Mm -hmm. Uh, I can't imagine trying to fit that in. So I'm just super excited. You know, what a way to to celebrate Star Trek 50th anniversary. What a way to get so many different people. I mean, think about, you know, Brian Fuller involved with Voyager and, and, of course, Nick Meyer involved with the great, TOS films. Now we have Kirsten Beyer, who has been in the novel verse. So all of these different experiences coming together to create, hopefully, something incredible that we'll all love. And what excites me, you know, Kirsten is such a fantastic character writer, and she understands arcs and how to put that over kind of a few different books. So I I really think that's going to help when we talk about doing arc seasons. I'm sure this is going to be much more, you know, connected of a story, much more serialized of a story than even Deep Space Nine was. So to me, she's one of the best people out there to do that because of her work in the Voyager novels. Here, here, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it just also makes me wonder who else is on this writing staff. There may be names we don't know of, but there may be names in there that we do know of, and I don't mean from the novel line, but from any of the past series or even movies. Mm-hmm. That's that's true. I mean, I I would have loved if if we got some other people like that involved. And what I love too is this fact that we're just getting people who know Trek and who like Trek, mm-hmm. you know, writing the new series and creating it. And so it, to me it's it's very exciting. Um I I can't wait for Beyond to come out and I'm getting more and more excited with these announcements about the new show. So yeah. uh, there are a lot of work to do for the release date. So uh, crossing my fingers that everything goes well and they don't end up having to push it back. But, you know, hey, you know, January 2017 looks like it's going to be a huge Trek party for us. So, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting excited <laughs> sitting here again. You guys I can might actually have to hold see me down. the goosebumps <laughs> on Dan right now. <laughs> yeah, simmer down, simmer down, <laughs> simmer down now. Okay, uh, we did want to let you know too here. Uh, we're going to be having Jeff Lang on in our next episode to talk about Force in Motion, which is out. Uh, it came out yesterday, so be sure to pick that up at your local bookstore or, of course, at any of the fine e-retailers selling an ebook. I've got it on my e-reader, and I can't wait to dive into it. So we just wanted to let you know that before we dive into our feature. And, uh, Dan, I think you have a few things to let everybody know before we do that. Absolutely. Well, as you know, Literary Treks is just one of the many podcasts you can find here here on the Trek FM network. Uh, You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can find us on iTunes. And while you're there, please give us a star rating and a written review if you get the time, because that really helps us rise in the rankings and helps Star Trek fans find the podcasts on Trek FM, and especially the book fans in this 50th anniversary. Maybe you want to catch up on some of the writings that Kirsten Beyer has done and hear an interview with one of the new writers of the Trek 2017 show. So check those out for sure. Uh, If you're not an Apple user, though, we've got you covered as well. You you can find our podcasts on Windows Phone, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, and you can also grab the RSS link and download the MP3 file at our website, trek.fm, as well. While you're there, you can leave us a voicemail. Just click contact on the sidebar, uh, or you can also go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. Also, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and also on Twitter. Our username there is at trekfm. While you're on Facebook, also check out the Babel Conference. Uh, just type in the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field to find us. That's our listeners-only group. And also, for Literary Treks, we have the Goodreads group, where you can find all the past books we've read, as well as what's coming up in the future, so you can stay caught up. And as well, you can join in in all the conversations about all the books in the Star Trek universe. Last time in the Star Trek universe, Captain Kirk, Captain Picard, they're on the Borg home world. Only one man can save the day. Kirk decides... Picard is the one who should live. He shocks him in the doll, knocks him out, 
Gibson beamed to the Enterprise. That's the last we see of Kirk as he pulls the lever. Now. Star Trek Avenger. Bum, bum, bum. Wow. That's what we're doing tonight, guys. I read that. Everybody yeah, read that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that sounds awesome. The Avengers? Yes. Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> I know. I'm so excited. I, I was like, oh, Captain America's going to show up, and then maybe Superman will come over, and where's the Hulk? <laughs> and then Thor's going to meet Kirk's dad and be like, wait, what's going on here? And... <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute. We look a lot alike. Hmm. Must be like some quantum time mechanics, alternate universe, space time continuum thing. Hmm. <laughs> Scan for chronotons. They're always around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay, so we're back in the Shatnerverse, guys, and I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I honestly have not read this book since it came out, and that's, what, 1997? So, uh, and I had no idea to expect, really, because I really forgot the story of this one. Like, I knew Ashes of Eden, and I knew the return. So I wanted to ask both of you, I know we're coming back to Avenger. What were your general impressions coming back the second time? Well, for me, this actually wasn't a second time. The only uh, Shatnerverse novel I'd read before doing them for Literary Treks here was The Return. So this was all new to me. I had no idea how Kirk came back again uh, and, you know, what the story of this one was. So, you know, this was an entirely new experience for me, you know, and anytime you get new Trek, whatever the form is always fun. So there was definitely that aspect to it. Uh, I... You know, I I enjoyed this one. I thought it was pretty good. We'll get a little bit more into some of the specific stuff that I had issues with and some of the stuff I loved. But uh, generally, this was a pretty good first-time Trek experience for me. Uh, Bruce, how about you? What was your experience reading this for the second time, I'm assuming? Yes, it was the second time. It's very similar to Matt's experience. I read this not in 97, but in 98. I waited until the paperback edition came out in May of 98. And I'm looking on the inside cover here. That same month is the month they came out with the X-Men Next Generation crossover. And that feels like forever ago. <laughs> so it just shows how long ago this novel was. And what's similar is the fact that I also didn't remember much about this novel. I read the first two novels and I remembered those, but for some reason when this came up to do it on the show, I thought, I can't remember what happened in Avenger. And I re even remember some of the things that happened in the no Shatnerverse novels after this, but I was like, okay, I'm really interested in reading this because I really don't remember much of it. And after I reread it, I couldn't really understand why I didn't remember a lot of it. Th things started to come back to me, but I actually was surprised that I it, it just didn't stick with me and I don't know why all, all I kept thinking was like it feels like the first time <laughs> you know like it really did it felt like the first time reading this book because I didn't remember so much of it and then like you Bruce a little thing it, it was almost like I was Kirk in the book you know where there's this memory that I can't quite figure out where it comes like from like Sarek was telling and you things exactly like he had been part of my life the whole time and i couldn't figure out why and if you've read the and book anybody you'll understand that reference exactly <laughs> hopefully you read the book because we're going to spoil it rotten we just kind of did um so yeah i totally felt like that and things kind of kept coming back and like oh okay that's right that's right and especially i think the big thing was i i couldn't remember how kirk returned yeah me either so you know in this one so th that was great i thought it was really fun um, but before we dive into kind of some of that stuff, the Federation is facing not just an existential crisis, but I mean, a massive ecological crisis. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to kind of hear what you guys thought about this, because it is an existential crisis, but it is also a physical ecological crisis that's been created. And... It was really interesting the way in which I think, and doesn't happen all that often, that the Federation is really challenged to its core about the way that it does things. So how did you guys feel about that? Well, I thought it was a really kind of interesting tack to take. You know, it's it's kind of something that isn't explored a lot in Star Trek, this kind of uh, uh, 
galactic ecosystem uh the idea that you know all these planets are connected and what does that really mean like what are the uh not just to cultures and civilizations but to the planets themselves and to the environment and that sort of thing and you know in in that way i thought it was a really interesting allegory uh for you know some of the things that are making news and some of the things that are important to today's world and yeah, anytime there's kind of a big existential threat, uh, I, I'm always fascinated, especially if it's, you know, well thought out like this one. It isn't just, you know, some big invader is going to kill us all. You know, it's a really interesting thing that kind of talks about the fundamental things that the Federation is about. I thought that was a pretty cool uh, way to go with this story. It was interesting, but it also at the same time to me felt a little forced maybe maybe that's not the right word but it just seems sudden it it's, seems if if a third of these federation plants are affected by virgin then it seems like that would be something that takes a long period of time and would be discovered so there was nothing no stories or nothing in other novels or other series episodes that kind of led to this so it just seemed too immediate that so much of an impact happened so suddenly um, but once I got over that piece of it, I did find it was interesting how the effects of world travel, well, I shouldn't say world travel, but universe travel to other wor- worlds is affecting the placement of these worlds and how they relate to each other and how uh, it has caused all these crises in the ecosystems of these planets that this virus is basically transforming into these into the plants and the animals and affecting in a negative way the environments of these planets just from us visiting them and and bringing different seeds of 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 plant that isn't from those planets and and bringing new food items and 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 people and different items to the planets that can affect them it was just i'm still kind of processing as i'm talking through it. it was just really interesting and fascinating to speak to your point, Bruce, I think one of the things that is interesting about the Shatnerverse, and, and um, I put it like this. Uh, so think of the novel verse that we have right now, and most of it kind of feels like the Marvel verse. It's all connected, right? right? But the thing about the, um, the Shatnerverse novels is they're much more like the X-Men franchise. Like, it's one movie, and then you're done, and then you move to the next movie. It's not all about, like, we're continually threading off different stories in each thing. No, it's kind of more like one contained story, each book. And each trilogy is loosely connected, you know. So I, th- I try to think of it more like that. And so in that sense, what they do in these books is really interesting. Judith and Garfield Reese Stevens really spend a lot of time, obviously, I think with Shatner, kind of figuring out what, what they want to do with the story and then they go and they really mine star trek and i think one of the things that it's kind of that sudden feeling is i think anybody's really thought of this before like what is the impact on all these planets of everybody especially the federation sharing uh ecological technologies um creating hybrid uh, plants and animals and grain species, you know, for food sources, all of that kind of stuff. What is the impact? And I'm sure that, you know, th- what's interesting is that it's it wasn't, I don't think, as bad then as it is now when you think about the fact that what we know as a chicken today ain't a chicken, really, compared to what they used to be. And there used to be lots of different species, but what we eat every day is pretty much one species of chicken, the corn we eat, it's one strain of corn, and we don't really have the variety we used to have. Right. So there's all of this that's been happening with food, and that's why there's this big organic movement that's been happening in the world, especially in, in America. Because you can get Kentucky Fried Chicken anywhere in the world. That's right. It's that's true. right. And it all <laughs> tastes the same. Uh, so, But I think it's a, it's a really interesting thing that this book is having this ecological crisis, but it really is something that could happen to our world if we aren't careful and we don't take care of it. We're not good stewards of it, you know? Um, if, if we don't uh, make sure that we're not eliminating all but one type of corn or wheat or—I mean, it makes me think of Interstellar. 
you know, that there's a blight that keeps happening and it keeps evolving and keeps killing all of these different crops to the point where nothing grows. That's basically what this is. This is interstellar before interstellar, but on an interstellar scale. Mm -hmm. Like it's happening to the Federation. And so to me, this wasn't the Borg coming after you or the Klingons or the Romulans or any, the Dominion, any of that. It was something that was much more subtle yeah, I, I just I thought it was really fantastic, and I talked a long time. So well, no, sorry. it's it's not <laughs> no, the no. villain of the week. That's what's cool mm-hmm. about it. Even though there's villains in this book, um, but that's not that's not the issue. That's not we're dealing with a a crisis. We're dealing with worlds being eradicated and uh, diversity is being wiped out in these worlds. And it's an interesting take too because it's not about traveling to different worlds and creating a federation and how it's affecting society and the diversity of societies is dwindling dwindling away it's it's about the ecosystem and i never really thought of it in that way so if a book mm-hmm. is getting me to think something differently then that's a good thing it's kind of like one of those things like every time i travel there's all these questions when i come back you know are you carrying fruits and vegetables? Have you visited any farms? Blah, blah, blah. And then I think about, you know, sitting down to watch Star Trek and they're beaming to and fro and taking shuttles everywhere to these different planets. And yeah, like you, Bruce, I just never thought of that before. I never thought of like what that would actually mean. And, um, you know, what the symmetrists are kind of trying to prove here with their uh, plan to introduce this uh, killer disease into different ecosystems. Um, and yeah, the fact that there's no major big bad guy, it's kind of, it's, it's more of this man versus nature that's kind of been set in motion by, you know, quote unquote terrorists, but you know, it's really more the fundamental policies and stuff that are, that are the enemy. I thought that was really cool. I mean, to me, what was so interesting about it as well is that you can see for me personally, uh, and my belief system, I can see the reason for design of having more than one type of everything, you know? Like, why is there more than one type of corn? Why is there more than one type of wheat? Why is, was there more than one type of chicken or dog? Or I mean, there's multiple types of everything. They're not all quite the same. And when we homogenize things, that's that's kind of, you know, bad. You know, that's that's what's happening in this novel is that things are becoming homogenized to the point where that, yeah, if you released this intergalactic uh, terror on the ecological systems of all of these different planets, they've been so brought down to the same base elements that you could take them all out instead of celebrating that kind of Basically, what was so interesting is it's the non-celebration of infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Mm, yeah. And that the Federation had, like all systems, found easier ways to do things, but that's not always the best way to do things. You know, sometimes doing it the hard way is better. And really learning to be an environment for that environment's sake and not altering it just to make it easier for us or is is a huge thing because I think that's what being a good steward of the environment means is understanding it and taking care of it in a way that helps it thrive, not makes it the same as the other environments. It's like, what if we all just wanted it to be desert? We all love deserts, you know? It's like, it's not what we have lots of ecological areas on the planet. They all exist for different and amazing reasons. So I just think it's so interesting. I really, to me, the existential and ecological crisis in the book Facing the Federation was one of the most unique things I've ever seen somebody do in a Star Trek book. Uh, And it created a really interesting nemesis for our characters. Mm -hmm. I really like what you said there about, you know, kind of understanding the environment and the systems and, and really, you know, kind of knowing it and, and being able to work with it on that fundamental level. And I love how they kind of turn it around at the end that the uh, the people that started this kind of in motion, they themselves, you know, thought they had the answers, but they ended up not understanding exactly all the very complicated processes and thought they had a cure to this thing. But then in the end, it turned out, you know, 
they had to develop something new because that ended up not working and you know their plans kind of got turned around on them you know things like environments and ecosystems are incredibly complex things and a lot of times in history with complex um complex systems we think we know the ins and outs of it and we think we know everything but you know then we find out pretty quickly that that's not the case and and it turns around turns around on us pretty quickly well and, and i mean just think about this the the federation and, and starfleet and all of its partners in a lot of ways what are they doing they're playing god and so the 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 ways in which the symmetrists are trying to fight back are the same thing they're trying to play god you know and the whole point of the the what they should learn and kirk challenges picard are we, are we learning the right lesson to me it seems like the lesson is we're not out here to play god you know remember archer said that mm -hmm. uh, back in one of those original enterprise episodes in the first season uh we're not out here to play god and I think that, you know, when you think about all the technology that they have, and, and Kirk even talks about that in this book, that how technology became so important to him and what he had learned is it wasn't about the ship, it was about the soul of the ship. And what was that? That was about the people that make it all run. And, you know, uh, we lose sight of that and our kind of get power hungry with all the technology that we have and we forget that what it's all for is to take care of the person next to us you know well the symmetrists at first really weren't playing god they were actually warning the federation and the federation wasn't listening to them which then eventually backfired to the point that the symmetrists started to play god which amazes me too because here again it's almost like the evil federation you know here's a group of scientists that are pointing out an issue that a cause uh, to our environments on our, on our planets, to our universe that could happen from us traveling and introducing these other elements into these different ecosystems. And they're ignored. They're looked upon as extremists. And you would hope that people in the Federation would really identify and listen and take caution to what they're doing. Uh, but they didn't. And eventually that backfired. I mean, this, this, these warnings were given to them 100, 200 years prior to the 24th century. And it, they just were arrogant and, like you said, continued to play God. Well, I also love how, you know, at, at first the Federation did kind of seem to take those warnings to heart and, you know, make some changes and policy changes and that kind of thing. But then, you know, this really kind of illustrates the bureaucracy that the federation is as well and you know those rules kind of have become forgotten and changed for you know what are probably politically expedient reasons or whatever at the time and you know those lessons are just completely forgotten which i thought was an interesting statement about uh governments and uh bureaucracies as well I think it it speaks to the idea of a large centralized government and how it just, like you said, it becomes a bureaucracy. And when you take power kind of away from the people or like in, in the Federation is, is sort of set up like the United States, you know, where you have a main central government, but then every state have it, you know, planet has its own government as well. And in a lot of ways, it's like when you start to take, power farther and farther away from the source then it becomes harder and harder to think about that source you know and the danger that happens when you have an overarching government that isn't really thinking about the small city you know and then the state and all that it's thinking about the whole but the whole isn't the same as what's happening in your local town your local city your state you know what I'm saying? Like the same thing with the planets. It's it's not all the same. Every place is different. Everything. So I, I think it really has a lot to say. And this book is so cool in that way. And, you know, unfortunately, the Shatner verse books get a bad rap. But just the conversation that we've had here for like the last 20 minutes on one point is pretty incredible. So I, I think that anybody who has not read these books or has kind of poo-pooed them or whatever, because oh, William Shatner is involved, um, you are missing out because Shatner, coupled with Judith and Garfield Reese Stevens, create amazing stories. And, you know, whether other stories in the series will live up, I think even just this one point 
proves this book is definitely worth the read. And I just dropped my hand right there. So uh, let's move on to another. You get this group with uh, questionable policies. And talking about Judith and Garfield Reese Stevens, you know, they wrote The Forge, where you find out that a Vulcan main character has a parent that's a part of a group that everybody kind of considers out of the mainstream and maybe acquiesce to terrorism. Um, and so some interesting, pa- <laughs> yeah, uh, so interesting parallels to that here, but this is before the forge. So do you think that they maybe use that or the enterprise and what did you think about that? Did it work for you? Well, it's, it's really interesting because yeah, while reading this, I noticed that like I, I kind of, I forget what made me think of it, but you know, Spock finding out that Sarek had, a large role in the uh, earlier days of this group before they, you know, turn to terrorism. I'll, I'll add, you know, Sarek isn't a terrorist. I was kind of worried as I was reading this book, they were going to tarnish his character that way, but that didn't happen. Um, and yeah, it made me kind of uh, remember to Paul's mother being a uh, part of the Cyrenites who were not terrorists, but were painted by the Vulcan government as terrorists and they were kind of outside the mainstream and that sort of thing. And then when I looked it up, r- noticed the forge written by Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens. And I was, oh, I wonder. Yeah. So, you know, there are some really interesting parallels here. And um, a lot of the same things that T'Pol and Spock deal with and some of the things they say just really reminded me of of the very of the two situations uh kind of juxtaposed against each other i thought there there had to be some kind of influence there or even just some sort of oh well we we kind of did this with spock i wonder if you know these kind of same ideas would work with Tapal. and i thought that was a really interesting kind of revisit of of those themes yeah, I bet they did remember this novel or, or parts of it and decided to to kind of play with that in the forge because when and now I'm glad we're talking about this because now I can sleep at night. No, uh, it's because uh, when, like I said, when I read Avenger and I've forgotten about it over time and I, I do that a lot with a lot of these books because I read so many of them and I get them all mixed up sometimes in my head, but when the forge came on, I remember watching that episode and thinking, I feel like I've read this before or read something like this before, maybe in a book or a comic or something. And now I know where it came from. It was this book. Cause I remember that feeling when I watched the forge, like this seems familiar. Like, I feel like I've, I've, I've seen this or read this like before some somewhere. And now I know where it was from Avenger from the same writers, except William Shatner wasn't involved in the forge, which is sad. He should have been. Wouldn't that been nice? Well, and what's really interesting about it too, is the fact that um, I feel like they're kind of setting the stage for what the Vulcans are going to look like in Enterprise yes, yes. too. Like mm-hmm. they're, Absolutely. they're mentioning all these things about Vulcans. And, and that's one of the things, think about this. We know so little about Vulcans. If you were to write a list of the things that you know about Vulcans from the series and from the films, and even from the next generation, Deep Space Nine and Voyager, before you get to Enterprise, I'm pretty sure that if you took out a legal pad, you would be able to only have one sheet worth of what you know. Mm-hmm. It's just not that much. So, you know, uh, really adding to the Vulcans here and giving them some dimension, I thought was fantastic. And to me, it was just like, you know, after having Enterprise in my mind as well, this makes so much more sense that Vulcans aren't as homogenized as we thought they were, that there are different groups of them, and there are different people who see that they can use logic in different ways that not everybody would agree on. What I also like is the fact that they also show how logic can be used to make anything okay. Mm-hmm. Because logic by itself, it, it it's not a... Uh, a ruler for what's right and wrong. It's just only a, a process to find out what's logical. And that you can use any different pieces of uh, a thought process to make something logical, but you need something else in there to find out whether if it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And so I love that here, you know, and it makes the Vulcans to me a much more interesting race. Mm-hmm. 
it's kind of, I'm kind of noticing a theme of, of novelists writing for television coming through in this episode for some reason, <laughs> but, but yeah, it, it kind of makes me wonder, you know, um, kind of going back to Kirsten Beyer writing somebody, somebody read something that she did and thought she'd be good for the series. And similarly, I'm wondering if someone maybe read this novel or, an, an, another novel that they did about the Vulcans because Judith and Garfield really do a great job with Vulcan stuff. And then they come back and write the forge, you know, it, it just, somebody recognized something there. And, uh, like you say, we learn way more about the Vulcans from them than we ever did before. Yeah. Well, someone reach out to Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens and find out if they're working on the new TV series. They might, we don't know. Um, it's very possible. It's very possible. We don't know. The only reason we know about Kristen Byers because she was going to be at uh, what is it? Um, the Shirley Shirley, yeah, yeah, in Baltimore. So when I was reading this again, let's place this back. This is 1997. This novel came out, and of course, Enterprise came out. You know, about six or so years later. It made me think how the Vulcans, especially as we start in the very first episode of Enterprise, doesn't want earth to get out into the stars and start traveling we're not ready yet we're not ready yet so i started to think it's kind of interesting because now i'm thinking maybe some of these vulcans were symmetrists maybe they knew that they didn't want us out there because we could affect the ecosystem because in this book it's a group of vulcans that are mostly the symmetrists that are trying to prevent the federation from expanding and growing and traveling to different worlds so there's a parallel between those two and i thought that was interesting too if you can if you want to look at the vulcans in a with more dimension to them in enterprise you can attribute this storyline into that play very cool i i hadn't thought of that that's that's actually really awesome <laughs> i want to go like back and, and watch the first couple seasons of of enterprise now and look at soval with a with a different uh appraising look <laughs> What I like is just the fact that, you know, they're really mining Star Trek. You know, they're mining all that we've had in it and taking those pieces and helping create new and interesting stories with that, you know. But they're mining what's been done and they're paying homage to it by building on top of it. You know, it's the Lego Foundation has been built and they're just continuing to build the tower of Star Trek with incredible stories and tying things together, you know, the way they use uh, Kodos and Taurus 4 and all of that, what happened to Kirk and tie that into the symmetrist. You know, I think that's just really, really interesting and kind of leads us to the fact uh, and the question of, you know, Kirk Asarek's think, think, son, quote unquote son. Um, how do we feel about Kirk being the one who's the Avenger? Uh, and, you know, unfortunately he doesn't get to wear any, you know, awesome armor or carry a shield or a hammer or anything. Um, but does that work for you, especially as kind of being quote unquote, you know, Sarek's son? Does it, does it feel like it's out of place? Does it cheapen Spock's role at all? What do you guys think? Well, this was kind of the point in the novel where, you know, I, I've really been enjoying it. Great story. Uh, and yeah, it got to this point and it just, it seemed to really change the tone of the book a lot for me where, you know, Kirk's had this connection with Sarek for many years and, and, you know, I can accept that. That makes sense. Um, okay. But then it, it kind of morphs into this idea that Kirk is, you know, a son of Sarek almost, almost on the same level that Spock is. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, there's so much, so many dynamics between Sarek and Spock and their relationship that, you know, the idea of having the surrogate son come in who, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I can't even really quite place my finger on exactly what about it is so annoying to me, but so would you have rather have been Cybok? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's yeah. Uh, man, <laughs> I, I just, the idea, I, I think part of what it is, is, um, you know, Kirk is all things to all people. He's awesome. He's the ubermensch. He's, you know, the best you can possibly be. And then, you know, Spock, Sarek, ask any of the ladies in that. this book. You know, Kirk has to take that too. Like, come on, really? 
<laughs> Kirk is everybody. <laughs> he can be anything that you want him to be. Um, he, He's more than meets the eye. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's, it, it was a little strange, uh, but I liked it because it was so different. And it made me think of not just Kirk in a different way, but all of Star Trek, the original series for the most part, in a different way. It's it's connecting Spock and Kirk together even more so as brothers. Because in the mind of Sarek, he set it up that Kirk is also his son. Now, for anybody listening to this and is saying, okay, I haven't read the book in a while and I don't know what you're talking about. Essentially, <laughs> uh, when Kodos uh, went to kill Kirk as what well, he was like 13 or something, Sarek was there because he's a symmetrist. So was Kodos. And Sarek saved Kirk's life from Kodos, not keeping Kodos from kill- killing Kirk. And Kodos didn't want Kirk to remember because he says, well, Kurt's been witness to everything that's gone on here and I don't want that out there. So Sarek says, don't worry about it. And so he mind melds with Kirk so he would forget about that event that happened. So Kirk doesn't remember Sarek being there and also mind melding with him. And and Sarek kept mentioning that Kirk reminded him of his son because Spock and Kirk are, you know, close in age. And that play of Sarek in the back of his mind subconsciously plays in everything that affects Kirk in his decisions in his life. And so the fact that Kirk's decisions are affected because of Sarek, it's the same thing with Spock. I mean, a lot of the things that our parents do with us affect our decision-making. And Sarek raised Spock. So now we have Kirk and Spock who don't realize that in some manner they are brothers and then come to find out here we are in a whole nother century and they find out they have this connection. And I just thought that was really an interesting kind of fable, I guess. Uh, it, it's a little different for Star Trek, but it was kind of fun at the same time. It was, it was also, it was a little mystical, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Well, and that's that's kind of the way that I took it too, Bruce. The fact that the idea, you know, Kirk and Spock and then McCoy, they've always been a lot more like brothers than they have anything else. And this was a way of kind of making that fully a reality. But I, I, another thing I added to that was I liked the way in which they explained why Spock was never mind-melded with by his father because that's a tradition Mm. and the fact that we actually got an answer that really made sense of Spock loving his son he's protecting his son you know he's doing everything he can to make sure his son never has to betray him or his mother or know what happened and betray his oath to Starfleet even though he wasn't really in favor of him being a part of Starfleet in the beginning you know so I thought that added a real depth to everything and so it wasn't really so much about Kirk being the Avenger it was just about Sarek being a type of father that even Spock didn't realize he was until now. And to me, that was the really cool thing of seeing that Sarek, that Sarek was actually a better dad than we gave him credit for. And now we know that. And in some ways, too, he was an even better dad because he helped create a bond between Kirk and Spock, these two titan characters that uh, will need each other and even in this book they talk about how bones comments well you've become more like spock and you've become more like kirk and it's all mixed up now you know how much they've become alike and how much they do need each other and they rely on each other and so to me that was the most interesting part and the part where uh, you know the avenger thing became a little interesting was the the point at which kirk avenges Sarek and that was a really interesting thing for me because it got to the core of that idea that you know uh, each of the different characters represents you know the id you know the the ego and the super ego uh, and really Kirk he's 
controlled his passion all of his life. And that almost that he is able in this moment to burn it out, you know, to like let it all go, finally let it go in this one act that he would not normally do. But it's almost like a superhero doing the thing that they wouldn't do once, you know, like Batman killing the Joker or something like that, you know, like, uh, and in fact, you can even read, um, the killing joke like that, that the Batman finally killed the Joker. Uh, that's that's one of the possible endings that you can read it as. So I just think, uh, to me, that is just so fascinating to place Kirk in that place where, you know, Kirk would normally not kill the enemy like that. You know, he would take him in, especially if he can. But to me, that was um, that was an interesting place to take the character. And so what will be most interesting to me to see where it goes from here with the rest of the storyline. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think to me that's uh, that's the most interest interesting question for me as well. Is you know where is Kirk after this? I mean, we see him kind of settling back uh, on Chal with uh, Tilani, but yeah, I mean, we know he's going to be taking up the Kirk mantle again in the next book. You know, I'm curious to see that voyage, like how he gets to there again and, and you know, what different will he bring to the character? Like how will he be Kirk, but you know, changed after this. And I find that really interesting. I do very much agree with what you said about Sarek and the fact that, uh, you know, it shows him to be a much better father than we assumed he was. I actually at, you know, at some of those points found myself really grinning about, Oh, wow. That's, that's really great. You know, how Sarek protected Spock and that sort of thing. So yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a very good point there. I also remember, uh, back in the time when these novels were being written, William Shatner mentioning that in his life, the things that he was going through at the age that he was, that he was taking what he was learning at that time in his life and getting getting those thoughts into these books. And I thought about that when I was reading this because he was talking about running out of time and not wanting to wait anymore and going ahead and and, and stop running and, and, and just, and just do it now and, and stop running from your failures and from your past and, and just being more, come on, do do it it now, now. get to the chopper. (laughs) What is wrong? No. So, um, and not wanting to wait for things. And if I remember correctly, it was after this novel came out that William Shatner's wife died. I think it was in a pool. She drowned in a pool. And I think I remember in an interview, he mentioned that and taking life, taking advantage of life and waiting too long. And this was just another reminder of that. And so I think at this time in his life and even then later in his wife's death, and I think even to now, William Shatner has always been running from getting old. And I think this was also his way of saying, don't wait, do everything you can now and be passionate about it now. And I don't think he was always like that in his younger years. And I think that's some of the messaging that he was putting in here. Well, and, and that really, I think, leads us to something, a big part of the book that we haven't talked about, because as I promote at the beginning in a very silly manner, you know, Kirk was left in the last book. He had returned, but kinda, and he is sacrificing himself again. And so we get the return again. And so I wanted to ask you, what do you think about uh, Kirk being saved by the Borg recycling program? You know, getting thrown into a Borg recycling bin. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things that like, okay, yeah, they, they have to do it somehow. And, you know, I, I like that it was, you know, at least kind of logically thought out a little bit deus ex machina, but there's really, you know, what else could it be than that? The one thing I have to say is like, I'm really glad this novel didn't end with him seemingly sacrificing himself because 
I, I was worried because like I said, this was my first time reading it. So I had no idea how this was going to end. And I was probably going to throw it across the room <laughs> if, you know, Kirk was making some sort of heroic self-sacrifice and seemingly dying at the end when, you know, we know there's, you know, at least six or three or however many more novels coming up after this. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's something they had to do. They had to bring him back somehow. So I guess it's kind of as good a way as any, you know, at least we get an explanation and it's kind of cool, I guess. Uh, but, you know, oh, man. <laughs> All right. Yeah, it works. <laughs> I think JJ and company read this novel because Transwarp Beaming is in here. Um, that's <laughs> what the Borg d- do. When uh, Borg are dying, they transwarp beam them to this weird planet junkyard of borg where they're tearing them apart and reprocessing and reassembling them i thought it was a little strange i think it was supposed to be strange but weird to the point that it just didn't really work for me uh it's an interesting way to say oh get kirk out of the situation he was in at the end of the return and have the borg bring him back to life and rub him down with Vaseline to get rid of nanites. I mean, I was like, (laughs) (laughs) it was just a little, wait, wait, wait. You don't, you don't think Borg jelly really does the job. You don't think that does the trick that and putting in some sort of like mystic Borg river. I, 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 it never occurred to me, but now obviously it does. Yeah. Borg jelly, uh, or preserves, whatever you prefer. (laughs) <laughs> but um it was just really kind of weird and i mean i actually kind of went back and why did i say kind of i actually did go back and reread that part again because it was just a little strange um so yeah i would say that didn't really work for me very well and hugh was there too so it was kind of like a little family borg reunion <laughs> i don't know it was just weird <laughs> It was a really strange... Now, I have to say, the idea that the, the Borg have this uh, interesting reclamation process, you know, that uh, the moment, uh, like, a ship is being destroyed, that a, a transwarp conduit is opened up and the Borg are beamed to... And I would assume there's more than one of these, my guess would be, but they're they're beamed to a planet in which they're basically just dumped and then they're slowly recycled because, you know, the Borg don't really waste things. So whether it's a, you know, ship parts or anything like that, it, it's beamed back to these planets. But what planets. happens to so, the human element of these Borg, though? I guess they just decompose, I is my guess. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it, but yeah, it had a very, like, you know those films where somebody goes and has a mountaintop experience and it's kind of weird and mystical and like uh, everything's in the shadows even in you know when it's replaying in their mind and you're watching it. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what this felt like um, to me. So it was almost like they wanted to not have to write this and they wanted to leave it as vague as possible. So when Kirk's telling the story, he's constantly interrupted and the story is pretty truncated. I mean, it, we, we don't get tons and tons of detail on it. And I think that that's the way they wanted it. They want it to be, we're saving Kirk. We get it. We know it's kind of weird. But like you said, Dan, I think there really actually was some serious thought into this in the sense of, okay, how do the Borg work? And how could we use that to save Kirk? And would the Borg don't waste what they don't have to? And they have technologies, the I mean, with transwarp uh, dimensional, with transwarp conduits and everything like that. The, the fact that they could open one of those and trans uh, you know, warp beam somebody didn't really seem all that strange to me. It, that part wasn't the weird part. It was just kind of dumping him in a Borg recycling plant. And, you know, the fact that there were also these Borg that aren't Borg anymore and they kind of live as normal people basically and they rescue the Borg that they can and the that the fact that the uh, you know the main Borg don't realize that's happening yeah and and that Kirk lived with them weird. for two years wasn't it I think it was two years yeah he lived... yeah I mean he was shacking up with one of them too so yeah. it's, and then yeah. he... and then and then randomly found a fully intact working scout chip in a junkyard so you <laughs> that's know that's right hey 
Hey, where, where, happens where he all the that, time. By the way, where is that chip? <laughs> hey, and not only that, but he was able to take like uh, Klingon tea leaves with him too to save Delaney's <laughs> life. I mean, <laughs> that that kind of threw me too. It's like I don't understand how he has these leaves, Klingon leaves from the Borg planet to to save lives. He saved the Federation. Now that was something that actually made sense. It to didn't me with me. Explain, please, because. He's got all of these Borg from all over the universe, right? All over the known universe. And so the fact that they would have ideas and uh, about medicine and cures and all that kind of stuff, because they make a point of saying that the Borg retain their knowledge, uh, the, these saved Borg, these redeemed Borg, <laughs> uh, they, they, they retain their knowledge from when they were Borg, so they have all of this incredible um, amounts of data and information so the fact that they would understand some of these things quicker and faster than even, like, say, Starfleet doctors or computers made a lot of sense to me because they've been Borg, you know. So um, understanding uh, pathogens and things like that that might attack the Borg and cause them harm makes a lot of, of sense medically. So, so there was a Borg actually telling him ha- that there's this Virogen thing out there, and when he goes on his scout ship, he should go grab some Klingon leaves. I yeah. guess, <laughs> but that part, it, at least it kind of made a little bit of sense to me, the fact that, you know, you have people from all over the galaxy, the Borg themselves have faced all sorts of different types of pathogens and viruses and all that kind of stuff, their knowledge and the way and how fast they can work because their minds are all working together, uh, that it part makes sense. kind of makes sense. Saying? I mean, so it's like rushing headcanon, yeah, I always like that. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of a, that's a, how I kind of piece it together. And, yeah, okay, that works. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I squinted and it it it, it worked. Um, so you know, it it's it's not perfect, but um, they had yeah, like you said, Dan, they they had to do something, and part of it works really really well, and then part of it is just kind of odd, and you just let it go. So um. Don't well, break out the song again. <laughs> no, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna Elsa it right now. Um, everybody just clapped as they're listening in their headphones. Um, so we could talk more about this book, but the, you know, there's still a lot that we really haven't talked about. So I don't feel like that we've completely. If you haven't read and you're still listening, great, but go read the book. Uh, I wanted to get to the ratings and see what you guys thought about this one. So, uh, Bruce, what do you think uh, ratings-wise? Where do you put this one on maybe a, uh, a five Borg scout ship rating scale? Mm, well, I, d- I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I like all the different elements that it borrows and connects from the different uh, series and movies into one. Uh, it had a great pace to it. I love the chemistry of seeing Kirk and Spock together. I think that was spot on. Uh, and as we talked about, the whole ecosystem uh, storyline was a very interesting to me. The uh, Borg planet, mm, yeah, not quite so much. It, it wasn't that I didn't like it. I just thought it was kind of weird and a little bit confusing, but I, I was okay with it. So, um and considering that, you know, we've got the jelly in there, I would give this four out, four and a half out of five. Nice. Very good rating. Um, yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed this as well. Uh, you know, first time reading it, like I've mentioned. Um, I, I really, you know, and, and this conversation really has illustrated to me how much there is to talk about in this book. You know, there are a lot of ideas, a lot of really interesting discussions can come out of this. Uh, the environmental aspect is obviously one of them. And even just the fact that it really explores one of the fundamental basic things about Star Trek, which is exploring strange new worlds. How could that be a problem? Well, you know, we kind of find out here. Uh, I, I really like that aspect of it. Some of the the weird kind of hand wavy stuff that you mentioned about, you know, how they bring Kirk back and that kind of thing. And, you know, a little bit of the the Kirk as the Avenger at the end thing kind of rubbed me just a little bit the wrong way. Um, but, you know, it's it's overall, I was really entertained by it. I thought it was really well written, really interesting, fascinating to coin a phrase. Um, I would probably have to give it, uh, it's, it's almost a four, but I'd have to go maybe three 
three and a half Borg scout ships. There's got to be a half scout ship lying in that dump there somewhere. That that'll be that'll be my. Well, reading. you know, and the the EMH was in there too. We had the Doctor, and then That's Kurt true. changed him yep. to McCoy, and then the real McCoy, <laughs> which they even call him the real McCoy, walks in. And says, Turn that damn thing off. I, I did laugh out loud at that. I thought only Data with his emotion chip could have delivered that line, and that was pretty good. I I'll give it props. Yeah, that. that that's one of the things that um, I will say took an entire star away from me <laughs> is that they Christine McDonald, the captain and uh, the Tobias, she calls her doctor, who's Mbenga's daughter, granddaughter, I think, grand granddaughter. Bones. No. No, 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 no. What's your answer? No. No. How does Matthew feel about it though? I don't really understand. I I don't like it at all. And so that actually took an entire star away from me because I was like, you cannot you can't do that. You just can't call another Dr. Bones. Um say Picard calling another first officer number one. If that's Picard's thing, that's a little bit different. You know, like he calls Worf number one in the novels. I can get over that, but he, he, Bones is Bones is Bones. You, you can't take that away from McCoy. So that really bothered me. Uh, otherwise, this, like you said, Bruce, this all of Shatner's novels just hum along. I mean, they read fast, and I love that. And uh, I, I had a really good time reading this one. I I think just for the conversation that we had tonight, this is seriously a four Borg scout ship rating here. This is this is fantastic. It's a really fun book. And I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, as we can continue on in the Shatterverse this uh, year, they'll continue to be so good because uh, it's just good stuff. So uh, I'm really glad that... Uh, yeah, we've, we're through the first uh, trilogy here. You know, I have to say, I really love how, you know, kind of the tangents our conversations go on. Uh, you know, this this book, I enjoyed reading it. Um, I did not expect the conversation we ended up having about it. I think, you know, that's really become one of my favorite thing about reading Star Trek novels now is getting able to share awesome conversations with you guys about them afterwards. Yeah, and now when I read, I really have to pay attention to what I'm reading because I know you guys are going to ask me questions about it. (laughs) (laughs) We're worse than English teachers. (laughs) (laughs) And you were one, weren't you? I was indeed, Oh, (laughs) no, I'm in trouble now. (laughs) I'm good at grammar. I can tell you that. I am good at grammar. No, I I love the fact that, uh, you know, we get the opportunity to talk about things like this. I I just think it's fantastic. Um, You know, these books are so much fun and we get a chance to do that because of our, our Patreon supporters and because of our associate producers here, we have Will Wynn, Kim Tripp, Brandon Shamatola and a guy named Bruce Gibson. I don't know who that is, uh, but um, yeah, he's dodgy. Uh, But uh, we really do. uh, Seriously, I appreciate you guys so much for what you do because you make sure that we can bring the content to everyone through Trek FM each and every week. Now, we're a listener-supported network, and what that means is that we need help from the listeners to make sure that all the content keeps coming to you. So go to patreon.com slash trekfm like Bruce did, and you can find out how you can support the network and make sure that we stay ad-free and content-based and keep all of it coming to you each and every week. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. And I want to say a special thank you to everyone who has taken out a few moments of their time to go to iTunes and give us a star rating review. Really appreciate that because it helps people find the show, and especially here in the 50th anniversary as we're celebrating the fact that Star Trek is coming back on screen. It's going to be coming back to the small screen. We've got Kirsten Beyer, uh, a writer, writing soon for the new show. (laughs) Yeah. Guys, go and review us on iTunes so more people will find the show. Uh, We need your help. Uh, That's one of the biggest ways that people find the show is for your iTunes ratings and, and reviews. So go do that. You do that, we'll mention you on the show. How about that? You don't even have to give us a, a nice rating. You don't even have to give us a, a, any kind of start. Just just do what you feel is right, and we'll make sure that we represent you on the show by saying thank you. So Now, Dan, uh, when, you, when you're not trying to find your way out of uh, the mucky and mire of a, a Borg reclamation plant, uh, where can we find you? 
Well, luckily, I just tripped over a scout chip, so you'll see me soon. Uh, but yeah, I generally, uh, I'm tweeting about my experience with all these Borg drones here. Uh, my username is at Kertrats, that's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube, uh, Kertrats Productions is uh, my YouTube channel there. I'm on Instagram, Kertrats47, and I'm on Facebook.com slash Kertrats Productions. And you can also find me on the Babel Conference talking about all things Star Trek and totally geeking out about Kirsten Meyer. Um, and uh, Bruce, uh, when you're not holed up in the shuttle bay because Captain Kirk can't possibly have another captain upstaging him, uh, where can we find you? You can find me sleeping on the couch here at Literary Treks. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex and uh, with StarWarsReport.com. Well, uh, I mean, gosh, if you're not going to upstage Kirk, then I will. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me doing the orb here on the network with Chris Jones, where we talk all about Deep Space Nine. I'm also doing our general geek show. Uh, we love talking about Star Trek, but we also need a place to gather together to talk about all the other fandoms that we love here on the network. Uh, and so we do that at the 602 Club. Join us. We pick a great new geeky topic each week, whether it's old or new, new films, old films, books, Star Wars, all this stuff. We do that at the 602 Club, and it's so much fun. You can also find me on a show called Aggressive Negotiations with my friend John Mills, where we talk about Star Wars, and that is on The Nerd Party. So check out thenerdparty.com, or you can find us on iTunes as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.